Well, the text for preaching is Mark 13. Um, kind of another lengthy reading. But um, you might see some of the language from Ezekiel 7 and 14 in this. We didn't read 14, but Ezekiel 7, you might see some of it in this. That's the reason we read it. But I'm going to read this to you and then um, lesson. The lesson will not be shorter than the reading. So, all right. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious before him what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and there never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after, the tri after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be fallen from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And, when they and, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day 
or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Lord, bless the reading of your word and uh, our understanding of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, we come to the longest single discourse in the book of Mark. Jesus, of course, just finishing, having just finished his teaching in the temple, teaching about how the Messiah of God was also the son of David. We talked about that last week. Uh, How, you know, from David would come what we called his son, but at the same time, David referred to this son as his Lord. And so Jesus taught that in the temple, that unlike what everyone was expecting this son of David to be like, the Messiah was not going to come and destroy Rome and reestablish the monarchy and have Jerusalem once again be a strong military force, right? But that's kind of what everybody was expecting. And so Jesus is turning this on his head by properly interpreting the scriptures and by asking this question, how does David call his son his Lord? Well, because his son was not going to be what everybody thought he was going to be, not just a physical descendant, but he was also, of course, we know, going to be son of God, son of man. And unlike what people were thinking, this Messiah was going to establish a kingdom that's not of this world, right? A kingdom that would need no geopolitical center because it will be established in the hearts of men and manifested through local bodies of believers and followers of the Messiah, just like what we're doing here today. And although all the enemies of the Messiah will be a, but a footstool under his feet, and they are, he will not conquer those enemies with a sword or an army. But rather, he will conquer them by his cross, and he has. As Colossians chapter 2 says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And of course, one day he will utterly destroy them. But they are as good as dead now. Jesus has been demonstrating through his teaching how this kingdom is so unlike anything that man would have come up with and established. Never would men have established a kingdom in which the last would be first and the first last. That's not the way we think, right? Never would men have established a kingdom in which the leaders of that kingdom are servants. But Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And never would men establish a kingdom where it's not so much how much you give that matters, but why you give that matters, which we learned last week, right? From the widow and her mites that she gave. This kingdom is different than what men were expecting, but it's the very kingdom that God was establishing and is to this day. The blind, the lame, the sick, the demon-possessed, the poor, the outcast, and even a criminal on a cross 
can find a place in this kingdom. But unfortunately, as Jesus has been demonstrating and Mark has been recording for us to read, it was the religious zealots, the leaders of Israel, the elders, the ones who should have recognized him from their studies of the scriptures. It was they who could not accept him, right? We saw the common people heard him gladly. But the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders of Israel, they were trying to figure out a way to kill him. They wanted him gone. They hated him, and therefore they hated God. I mean, Jesus said as much. If you, if you love God, you love me because I'm of my Father. They're willing to kill God's Son in order to shut his mouth, in order to take what they thought was theirs, right? Jesus demonstrated that in the parable of the tenant farmers that we read a few weeks ago together. And that was not lost on these leaders. They knew that he was talking about them. But they didn't care. They made it, it made them hate them more and want him dead more. And as a result of them rejecting God's Messiah, God's wrath would be brought down against Israel and Jerusalem. As he has done in the past, like we read from Ezekiel, he did then. And we've, we saw when we studied the minor prophets, this judgment was coming upon the leaders of Israel and upon Israel and upon Jerusalem and the temple, and the temple will be destroyed. All that foreshadowed this event in Mark 13 that Jesus is talking about where the temple will be destroyed for good and never to be rebuilt. Because the fulfillment of Israel, the church, is now here. And it will be established from all corners of the earth. In other words, from every part of the entire earth. And through Israel, God brought his Messiah, the Messiah of the world, yet she rejected that Messiah. And so now God's Messiah, I mean, God's wrath will be poured out upon his people, upon Israel, not his people, but those who pose as his people, those who would not believe. The physical temple will be destroyed and replaced with a temple not made by hands, right? The one that Daniel described as a stone cut from a mountain by no human hand. And the act of God's wrath destroying Jerusalem and dismantling the temple is a sign of the end of the age and that that age has come, right? We are in the last times. We are in the last days. A lot of people uh, still will say, don't you believe we're, we're near the end? Do you think we're in the last days? And, and what they usually mean is, you know, don't you believe that the current president is the Antichrist or don't you believe that everything that's going on is all this stuff right here that we just read about? And the truth is, some of that I believe, some of it I don't, but I absolutely believe we're in the last days because we are. We have been, right, since Christ was here. The Bible's clear about that. Jesus was saying over and over, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's near. We read Mark, he's saying, hey, be, be careful, be aware that he's even at the gate. And Hebrews says that since Jesus came we are in the last days so we are in the last days and mark 13 is about that the last days and last things and signs and wonders and judgment and so that's where we are and i've been looking forward to this with anticipation and with dread okay it's both of them anticipation because it's important right this is the word of god this is important stuff and it's my duty to teach you the word of god so I'm looking forward to that, but it's a lot of dread in doing it because it's eschatology, which is 
If you're not familiar with that word, simply theology or the study of end times. And I know that this can be a heavy burden for a lot of us. And it has been for much of our lives. Because a lot of us came from similar backgrounds where we've learned only one end time view, which was premillennial dispensationalism. And you may not even know what all that means, but it, it's what we've mostly been taught. Um, and most of what we all know about it is discombobulated at best, right? Let's just be honest. If I said to you, hey, let's talk about what you believe about the end times. Most all of us, would we'd be all over the place, right? Because we've been taught so many di- different things. And I love that word discombobulated. It's just better than confusing, right? I could say it's confusing, but discombobulated lets you know it's really messed up, right? It's, it's messed up. So I'm not certain how much time I want to spend here. What I'm not going to do is leave out of this text and then go do an entire exposition of the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel and all that because I don't think that's necessary. I think it's important to to teach what's at hand and this chapter is here. And uh, what I think I want to do is cover it uh, and not spend, you know, until Jesus comes back, whenever that will be. I don't want to spend that much time doing this. I want to cover it and move on to chapter 14. So that's going to be my approach, but I do want to do justice to this text. And I'm sure that many of you want to know what does this mean and how do we decipher and so forth. And I want to try to help you and trust that the Holy Spirit will help us all understand a little better. Because after all, the Word of God is perfect, right? The problem with eschatology is not the Bible or God. All right? The problem with eschatology is what it always is. The problem is us and in us and it's sin. And we're all again messed up so what i'm going to do today is just a real brief introduction not a lot of exegesis from this because you can see there was a bunch there and i'm going to try to take it in little parts and try to break it down best i can and help us understand and um help you have something to go by as you hopefully read and study and think about these things um because i really think it's important for us to think through these things ourselves what I don't want, kind of like what Seth was talking about in the, uh, a few minutes ago, I don't want all of you just to simply believe what I believe. I don't want somebody to say, well, what do you think about Mark 13? Well, just go listen to what my pastor said, and that's what I believe. Whatever he believes, what I believe. Because that's kind of where we've all been over the years. And so I want to kind of help you hopefully sort of wade through this um, because also Matthew 24 and Luke 21, the parallel texts, we have to look at because they're very important. I think this is one of those times when we've got to put these texts together, look at them. So today, a brief introduction, and I'll show you where I'm going real quick. Um, I've already told you what reminds you of the context. Jesus has been teaching in the temple. They're leaving the temple, right? And according to Mark, some of the disciples are... Uh, one of the disciples, and according to Matthew and Luke, a lot of the disciples commented on the ornate beauty of the temple, right? Hey, Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. Look at these, this building, this temple. It's amazing. And then Jesus replies, yeah, well, it's about to be destroyed. And that, Don't you hate that when you're excited about something and you say something and people just cut it right out from under you, you know? Just yesterday I was talking to somebody about Man, this, this Braves lineup is unbelievable. You couldn't take anybody out right now. Who would you take out? 
And, and the guy was saying to well, I disagree with you. I'd take so-and-so. He'd been fired a long time ago. I don't like him. He's awful. He's hitting good right now. I was like, well, that was my point, man. Don't mess up my – that was my only point. You know, I just wanted to say that one thing. He tore all that out from under me. To, but, but it's funny right here. I, I see these guys trying to buddy up and, you know, start a conversation. Man, look at this amazing building. This is unbelievable. Yeah, well, it's about to be destroyed. It's about to be totally dismantled. And you can imagine, uh, I don't know how long it was from this moment until they're at the Mount of Olives, which is opposite from where the temple was. But it's at that point that uh, Peter, James, and John, or some of the disciples, maybe more, but that's the ones that are named for us, they've been thinking about what he said. And so they say to Jesus, well, tell us, when will these things be? You know, when is, when is this marvelous, beautiful uh, temple going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Matthew's account says a little bit different the question. This one I think is important. He says, they look at Jesus and say, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? They actually ask three different questions. And I think it's important because Jesus begins answering these questions, and he does so for the remainder of the chapter. And I think it's going to be important for us to see he's answering different questions. Because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, the Olivet Discourse, which is what this is referred to, chapter 13, that's where Jesus is talking about everything that hadn't happened yet. Well, if that's so, then we've got a lot of explaining to do because he says not one of this generation will pass away till all these things be fulfilled. We've got to deal with that. And all these other things that he's answering here, well, this temple was destroyed. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So obviously you can't just say chapter 13 is about something years and thousands of years away from what these people knew. No, something happened. Something's going to happen. And we'll talk more about this temple and why they asked this question because it was, according to the writers and recorders of history, an amazing piece of architecture like, like nothing that anybody's ever seen. And I don't think we, can, we realize, I didn't realize how big it was. Huge. Like just the outer court was something like 500 by 300 yards. And if you have to put things in perspective like I do, that's like five football fields by three football fields. So it wasn't just a little building. You know, it wasn't just a little thing sitting out there. This was, I mean, you can imagine sitting on the side of the mountain, this thing was unbelievable. And so Jesus answers these questions, but the first statement he makes in his answer is this. See that no one leads you astray. And I rarely do this, take one little phrase and try to, do something with it but I think it's very important because this is what I want to begin this introduction with and this exhortation to you because if there's one thing I believe that can be said about the landscape of eschatology especially in America it is that we have been led astray I mean we've just been put all over the place thanks mostly to the likes of Hal Lindsey the left behind books that's where most of us got our eschatology if we believe anything we got it from Kirk Cameron and all those movies right and I say that because uh, I, not necessarily I think all that position is wrong. Uh, I do think dispensationalism is wrong, and I'll talk about that. But I say it mostly because it's wreaked havoc upon the people of God with what I see as fear-mongering and guessing, right? I mean, all of our eschatology is about guesswork. I mean, every flipping 
day, there's somebody telling us when Jesus is coming back, when Jesus said, nobody knows when he's coming back. Not even the son. Jesus in his flesh didn't know. But still there's people that believe they're smarter than Jesus and the word of God, and they figured it out. And we could go back. Some of you can remember back, uh, I think the guy's name last name was Camping, uh, that had the billboard thing, and Jesus was coming back one year and didn't have him to come back the next year. And convinced people, people had limited their credit cards, withdrawn all their bank money, everything, because Jesus was coming back. And then, wouldn't you know it, he didn't. And um, I'm amazed that people still believe that. That's what I mean when Jesus says, do not be led astray. People have been led astray. Do not be led astray. I can promise you I'm not going to be talking to you about guessing time frames and that kind of thing. Um, we're going to try to look at this as practically as possible. But do not be led astray. And be careful. Um, because, again, I'll say up front, I believe these questions, I think Jesus is answering several questions here, not just one. He's not just answering, this is what's going to happen when I come back in my second coming. He's answering several questions. I think we need to look at that uh, from that perspective. And the other thing is these signs are given, they are given for warnings both to Christians in the first century and for us today. There were warnings given to them that they could pay attention to, and they did, and many of them left before the temple was destroyed and were saved as a result, saved physically. They didn't get saved by God salvifically because they left, but you understand what I'm saying. But what I want to say is though these signs are given for warnings, they are not meant to give us fear and cause us doubt. In fact, it's just the opposite. So when Jesus says, let no one lead you astray, I want you to be confident in this. Anything that the Bible has to say about the end times for the people of God is confident in assurance it's not fearful. We do not have to be afraid. Yet, that's what we've been taught, right? I know that many of you have been to uh, a tribulation trail or something like that. They, send, they, they take you to this place, and it's all based on this dispensational idea that there's coming this day when uh, secretly the church is going to be gone but you might get left behind and you got to figure out how to make it and not get the mark of the beast and so you go through this accident with these kids who are killed in a wreck or something like that and then they go to judgment and then they uh then they take you into hell and it's hot and awful and sweaty and then they take you into this nice room where it's the, the lighting's good and the air conditioner's on and they've got some abomination of god so sitting on a throne and they then they ask you you want to go back to hell or would you rather be in heaven? And, and they sort of get you to this point. And sometimes, in fairness, there is a gospel presentation. And I know that, honestly, I've been there. I've done it. I think the people are sincere in what they're doing. I don't think, I, I'm not making fun of people for doing that. But what I'm saying is it is a fear tactic. And they use the end times and eschatology to literally scare the hell out of people. So they leave, don't want hell, they want heaven. And it's not what the Bible uh teaches us about the end times in fact i was listening to a preacher this week an old-timey preacher and he said if anybody here knows of one place in the bible that jesus return is meant to frighten the people of god please let me know about it because in my 60 years of studying the bible i've yet to find it it's not in there it's not supposed to scare us and so i want you to understand that listen to our confession chapter 32 the last 
chapter, section 3, entitled The Last Judgment. Christ desires that we be firmly convinced that a day of judgment will come, both to deter everyone from sin and to comfort the godly more fully in their adversity. There's nothing about end times theology that should scare us or cause us anxiety. <clears throat> and how many of us have woke up at night thinking that the rapture might have happened and we missed it? Right? I mean, we've all been there. And yet we've prayed the prayer and we said the things and we trusted Christ. But because of those, because of that side of this eschatology, we've been taught that well, you might not have been sincere and that trumpet could blow and the church would be gone. You'd still be here. Then you've got to learn to make and Then you've got to survive. And I just think that's not a proper view. Because we shouldn't fear the coming of the Lord. We should anticipate it. We're like the virgins in Jesus' parable who were wise and took oil for their lamps and trimmed them because even though the bridegroom came at midnight, there was a shout, the bridegroom's here. Why? Because they were anticipating him coming. And so are we to do the same. And so Jesus says at the end of Mark 13, stay awake. Lest you be found asleep. Why? Like, the, like the, those virgins. They were ready. They were awake. Not suggesting that you're doing something will cause Jesus to come back and see you doing something and take you. It's just the point of Christ's people will be ready for him to come. We don't dread it. So any system or teacher that uses the return of Christ as a fear tactic, I believe is a false system and a false teacher. I've heard eschatology, the study of end times, summed up this way. In many churches, everybody often is contributing their own thoughts about the end times. Sort of what I said earlier about this discombobulation. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a little this and that. Very little scripture and study, which results in anarchy, which we call, I mean, which is disorder, right? So in a lot of churches, eschatology is disorder, anarchy. Or you have the extreme opposite side where a single pastor usually comes in and with uber dogmatism tells everybody his view, which of course is the only right view, and then anarchy is replaced with tyranny. Where there is an absolute unchallenged rule and undue harshness. Harshness. Anarchy. I mean tyranny. I thought that was a good way to put it. Because that's what a lot of times I think that's where we are. We're either just all over the place, disorder, or we just hold to the one person who's told us what to believe. Neither is healthy. So I want to try the best I can teach this text and give you some direction. Hope that the Holy Spirit will teach us consistency. Because here's here's why I can't believe and trust in what's known as dispensationalism. Because I don't believe the Bible is divided up into a bunch of theological categories. I believe there's one God, one church, and history is God's, and it is and will continue to culminate exactly as God has planned and ordained it, and the Bible is consistent from beginning to the end. And if our eschatology undermines that, it's wrong. And any system that dares suggest there's any other way to be saved outside the way everybody's always been saved, that's a wrong and faulty and false system. And unfortunately, dispensationalism does teach that, that one day Israel will be saved in a different way than the rest of the world has always been saved, the rest of God's people. 
And I believe that our belief, our understanding of the Bible being consistent should be what drives our eschatology. Our eschatology should not drive what we believe about the Bible. So in closing, as we go through this text, I want to bring some clarity to it and some clarity to our understanding of last things. I'm not here to dogmatically convince you of my position because, and you might not want to hear your pastor say this, sometimes my position, I'm, I'm really struggling where it's at. Okay, because I see, I, I know where it's not, but I'm not sure exactly where it's at. I do believe this, that uh, what I just said is true. It's culminating and coming together just as God has ordained, and it will happen. Jesus will return. He will come back. He will destroy his enemies. He will set up a kingdom on this earth, a new heaven, a new earth, just as John saw coming down in the book of Revelation, and will forever be with him. I do know that's going to happen, and I believe that with all my heart. And so I do want to dogmatically convince you that all that is true. And if Christ came back tomorrow or 10,000 more years from now, it'll be a glorious thing. And again, I point you back to our confession. Chapter 32 again, this time section 2. God's purpose for appointing this day of judgment is to manifest the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. Again, there's nothing for us to fear, children of God. So when you read this, I'm sure that just reading through it causes you to start thinking about, oh gosh, the stuff I've seen in the news, and the stuff I've, heard, I've seen on Facebook. People said, oh, this is happening, get ready. You know? And look, again, God can do what he wants to, and Jesus can come back when, he, when he's appointed to come back, and he will, whether our theology lines up with it or not. Uh, what he does will be correct. But I don't want you to be in disarray and I don't want you to be um, anxious about it because we will be saved and we are to take comfort in Christ. We are not to get sidetracked by the signs because the signs are in place to remind us that judgment is coming, just like the confession said. The signs aren't there for us to go, oh, <coughs> get all anxious and distraught. The signs are to remind us, and especially those we pray for every week, those who really suffer and are under trial and tribulation now and have been for uh, since Jesus was here the first time because they suffer great persecution. This is to remind them, hey, no matter what happens, judgment is coming. Don't you think that they're going to get away with this? Don't you think that the world can treat God's people the way they treat them and God not be mindful of it? He is mindful of it. The kingdom is here, and yet it's not here, not fully consummated. So don't let the tribulations of this world, even if they are exactly as described by Jesus here, don't let those tribulations take your eyes off the promises of God. And never allow eschatology to take your mind from the main purpose of eschatology. Which is, as the angel said 2,000 years ago, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up to, from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. That's the purpose of eschatology. He is coming back. And we can take great comfort in that. And I pray you do. And pray for me to get through this thing for the next however many weeks. But I don't make it, I don't muddy the waters, but I help clear them. And um, we figure this out together, okay? Father, we thank you for your word, and we do thank you for the fact that Jesus is coming back. And I thank you that 
you've left us a testimony of that, a testimony of yourself. And we have proof and we know that just as he went up, he will come back. And we do want to have hope in that. So help us. Take away any fear, anxiety, things that may have been put into our minds. And again, uh, we know that many of the people in our lives, most of the people in our lives who taught us things, they did so because they loved you and they loved us. They weren't trying intentionally to, um, to pervert anything. But I pray that you would teach us what is true and right. And that from that perspective, we'll, we'll be hopeful and not afraid not anxious, so that when someone does ask us uh, a reason for the hope that is within us, we can give it. And even when people are around us are so fearful of all the times and all uh, the signs that they see, that they can know that all this means is that Jesus is coming back one day. And we can hope in that and, and take comfort in it. In Christ we pray. Amen. Father, we are so very thankful for all these truths. And though sometimes things are difficult and we have to stop and really think them through, we thank you that you've left us a, a way to know you and to know what you have done and what you will do. So I pray that in the days ahead you will strengthen this congregation of your people, that we will, uh, not for purposes of appearing smarter than everybody else around us, but that we will be confident and hopeful knowing that uh, because Christ has redeemed us, we have nothing to fear. Not even this world, not even tribulation, not even death, because death will translate us to be with him. And Lord, we thank you for that. And if you come back, that too will translate us to be with you. And so we have nothing to fear, nothing but hope in front of us. And so we thank you for that, and we celebrate that grace that you give us through Christ, even now as we participate in this supper the grace that you pour out on us as we do what we've been instructed to do and we remember him until he comes even in the supper there's a remembrance there's a warning and a remembrance that Jesus is coming back so for all those who do not know you it is a warning hey, he is real and he is coming back but for those of us who belong to you it is assurance that he is coming to get us not to bring the judgment upon us. And we thank you for that. We bless you because of it. In Christ we pray. Amen.